Hello and welcome to our viewers on Crux Investor and also to our listeners on Cruxcast, our new podcast series. We're going to be speaking in a second with Brandon Munro. He's the CEO of Bannerman Resources there. have got a uranium asset in Africa and we're going to hear all about it now. Good morning. How are you, sir? Or good afternoon. How are you, sir? Uh, very well, thanks, Matt. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to come on. Well, we've had a lot of people asking us uh, to have you on the show, so we're delighted to be speaking to you. Um, so let, I want to start off, as I usually do, and get you to do a two-minute overview of the business for those people who perhaps haven't heard the story before, and then we're going to get into some of the meat of the, of the interview in a second. Well, Bannerman Resources is ASX-listed. We've been exclusively focused in the uranium space since 2006, when we started to develop our Itango uranium project in Namibia, in Africa, as you say. Itango is very unusual. It's enormous. It's 271 million pounds of resource with a reserve of 130 million pounds within that. So what that gives us is a minimum mine life of 16 years with quite exceptionally large production potential on average 7.2 million pounds. It's very advanced. We completed it first DFS in 2012. And since then, we've been using our time productively to undertake a three-year demonstration plant. So it's at pilot stage. And of course, we've had the opportunity to engage in various marketing activities within the nuclear sector. Nice and concise. Um, I thought we'd start, first of all, by getting your view of the market um, before we get into your story, because I'd love to go through your presentation um, and, and, and get, get into that, because there's some things in there which I've, um, I, I don't quite understand, and I, I'd love your um, input on that. So let's talk about the market, first of all. So the, the geopolitical situation about, around uranium, um, you've got some very passionate people out there. It's a very sensitive uh, subject. The psychology and the psyche behind it um, is, is quite an emotive one. So, tell me about who you think the main players are, and you know, and how that would impact on Bannerman going forward. Well, in a very broad sense, we are, I believe, on the cusp of a very broad policy realization that the clean energy imper uh, imperative is a must. There's growing and irrefutable evidence that regardless of your belief on what the causation is, we need to address climate change and we need to address man's contribution going forward to that. Now, what's happening just in the recent months is a recognition that renewables can't provide the whole answer. We had a few years of very optimistic projections on renewables. I've worked in the renewable sector, so I I feel like I've got a good understanding of how it works. And the truth is renewables do have to play a very important role in decarbonising our various economies, but they simply can't provide the exclusive solution. Okay, so just, just um, if I might just interrupt there a second. So can you just mm -hmm. um, define, given you've worked in both spaces, can you articulate the difference between renewable energy and nuclear, which is positioning itself as a, a green energy? Mm -hmm. So I would divide it along the lines of intermittent renewable energy sources and baseload renewable energy sources. So, of course, with intermittent, uh, it's predominantly the various forms of solar, 
and offshore onshore wind. Um, other technologies, tidal, et cetera, just aren't proven yet, and it's a long way off before we're really going to know if wave tidal, et cetera, are going to play much of a role at all. And there is an urgency here, which I think is driving nuclear policy. The, un, the baseload sources of clean power are really only nuclear and, of course, hydro. And what we're seeing is a broad acceptance that hydro comes with a very substantial tangible cost and that cost is both in the form of direct environmental damage that's caused by uh, dams and the rather significant legacy that we've seen but also social and geopolitical costs when we look at some of the hydro projects that are planned in central and east asia for example many in many instances those projects have got implications for multiple countries downstream and we've got some very unfortunate legacy examples of where poorly planned hydro projects have had devastating environmental and social impacts. And so when I look at the energy perspective in a very broad sense with this clean energy uh, imperative, there is a huge gap of what is currently being invested in nuclear and what needs to be if as a society and a civilization we have got any chance of arresting the current climate trajectory. So, I mean, would you, I mean, given uranium is a, it will at some point become a depleted resource, do you think nuclear is an, uh, an intermediary energy source, baseload source for now, whilst people work out how to efficiently harness the renewable side of things? To an, to an extent it is, but the filler is a multi-decade filler. So it's not a solution just for the next five or 10 years until storage comes in and saves all of the downsides and issues associated with intermittent renewables and their negative impact on grid stability. It is a multi-decade solution. And interestingly, it's multi-decade solution for itself. So if we start to project many decades forward, when we do start to see uranium uh, resources around the world come under uh, terminated pressure, there is a resource sitting out there which benefits civilization in two different ways, and that is nuclear waste. The technology does exist to extract further benefit and energy out of nuclear waste. That waste is very safely and securely stored waiting for that day. And the piece of the puzzle that's missing is it just simply isn't commercial to extract that energy source from that nuclear waste. So when you look at it that way, I don't think it's preposterous at all to talk about nuclear energy as becoming a renewable form of energy in the same way that uh, bioenergy works on maize fields waste or sugarcane waste to make energy. The nuclear sector has been very good at PRing itself over the last 10, 15 years. It's come from a position where people, based on fear out of the, un, of the unknown, and obviously a few black swan events, I think they're called in this industry, um, where people are very nervous about you know, what it could mean to their safety. Um, I mean, how has this PR revolutionized the way that nuclear has been positioned? And you know, obviously, how does that affect companies like you? Well, I would say that the industry is not very good at talking about itself at all. Okay. And the areas in which the nuclear industry has made PR progress 
has come almost exclusively from two forms. The first form is uh, at a very high level, the nuclear industry has in just the last couple of years successfully positioned itself at key policy making bodies. So the World Nuclear Association now has a seat at the Clean Energy Ministerial, an incredibly important body that will influence uh, government policies around the globe at a time when those uh, factors that I mentioned before in terms of clean energy imperative and the uh, downsides of intermittent renewables are coming in focus. Now, the second area where we are on a positive trajectory in the nuclear industry is actually caused by some very credible environmentalists. Um, a very good example is Michael Schellenberger. He's an environmentalist who has dedicated his life to environmental causes. He was one of the original anti-nuclear campaigners, certainly a um, uh, climate change activist. And several years ago, he had a very deep dive based on fact, based on economic reality, and based on an assumption that energy growth would continue despite what uh, people might wish it to be. And he came out of that deep dive with the irrefutable evidence that nuclear power offered the ideal solution over and above renewables. Now, it's people like Michael and other people like James Hansen who have that multi-decade credibility in the environmental space where the, if I call it the moderates in our society, are prepared to really listen carefully to what they've got to say and maintain an open mind and a dialogue. There are, of course, still extremist groups on both sides of politics, but in particular on the environmental side. And I don't think we're ever going to win them across to the nuclear power simply because they've got too much organisational and financial infrastructure that is tied to an anti-nuclear position. So those people are unwinnable, but for the vast majority of people who want to see a better world, who are becoming open-minded to the only way that we can achieve that, which is nuclear power playing a role, then I think we are starting to make progress in the PR game. And I just hope it continues and increases because as a civilization, we don't have a lot of time to ponder over these matters. Okay, interesting thought there. I mean, do you, so do you think this is a PR issue or technology advancements have also helped the cause? It's entirely a PR issue. Um, when you spend as much time as I have amongst the nuclear industry and amongst the engineers and the extremely clever people who operate in their little niches in this industry, when you've done what I have and visited the world's premier uh, long-term high radioactive waste depositories and just seen the extraordinary levels that they've done to reduce risks down to zero, it's nothing but a, a PR issue because those facts are absolute those risks have been reduced down to something that as a society sits well well below all other forms of energy and statistically nuclear is still the safest form of energy that we have ever used as a civilization with education comes understanding for, for all matters but let's move on to an area where the passions rise so <laughs> I've spoken to quite a few uranium companies recently. We've got the US companies, it seems, versus the, versus the world. Well, there are, there are a few, um, few, few friendly folk in there. I think the US would align themselves to, you know, Australia, Canada, et cetera. But I think the recent 232, uh, Section 232 
um, proposal from UR Energy and Energy Fuels, you know, use some pretty strong language around their PR, you know, adversarial type commentary. Um, and they position it as a security issue. But I've also spoken to some people across the aisle, as a phrase we use here, um, who don't necessarily see it that way. I mean, where, where do you sit in, in all of this? So I'd offer a slightly different perspective. Good. I think it's an incredibly important issue for the United States. It's not a security issue per se. It is a global relevance issue. It wasn't that long ago that the United States led the world on all things nuclear. And Westinghouse to this day has still built more reactors than any other um, reactor builder. And to see them take that mantle and a couple of years ago have their flagship industry in bankruptcy speaks volumes to just how far both policymakers and industry in the United States have allowed this flagship industry to deteriorate. And it comes at a time when Russia has really asserted itself with justification as the world's premier equipment supplier. And you have China who is moving very, very quickly and rapidly and effectively on the heels of Russia looking to assert itself as number one. And China's got a very strong driver in that. They've got an extremely strong domestic driver um, because of their clean air imperative and their requirement for baseload energy and the um, cannibalization of their coal-based baseload that they need to achieve. But they've got an even bigger driver, and that is the Belt and Road Initiative. And long-term offtake agreements and long-term 80-year partnerships that come with a new nuclear reactor is exactly what China's looking to drive there. So you have two extremely motivated, effective, state-controlled industries that have left the United States relegated behind not only themselves, but also South Korea in this industry. So I think that is far bigger and far more important than the issue of whether or not the United States has got access to fresh uranium to make tritium componentry of their weapons program. Um, and so I think there's a broader approach that the US needs to take to address all of those. And we've seen really in the last few months, the first strong indications that they are in fact prepared to do that with the funding uh, salvation package for Vogel, um, some of the innovative funding packages for Gen 4 and SMR reactors, but also the rhetoric. And uh, I find that particularly interesting coming out of Secretary Perry and others. That's, that's, that's really interesting. We've not heard that thinking before. Uh, certainly not with the interviews that I, I've done, and obviously we are new, new to this. So can we get into that a bit? Because you were saying that Russia, uh, China, they have um, taken taken the lead, as it were, from from America, from Westinghouse, and you know, and and for whatever reason, the United States have kind of dropped the ball there a bit. Do you think that this two three two issue will save uh, the U.S. uranium um, businesses, or do you think it was a tactical move by the two companies involved? Obviously, the knock on effects have been huge, and we'll get onto that in a second with regards to utilities. Um, do you think that uh, America can recover its situation? Do you think it needs to recover its situation or should it focus on other ways of dealing with this? Um, whether they need to recover really depends on whether America's entering a longer term phase of looking in or if it will 
return to looking outside its own borders um, after we've um, had administration change, which might well be another um, several years away. Um, the reason why it's so important from a geopolitical perspective is uh, energy security, as your audience would know, is really one of the absolute hot topics when it comes to geopolitical tension at the moment. We tend to hear about trade, but we've seen in the relatively recent past how Russia has asserted itself on energy security with some of its neighbours. Mm. Um, we've seen a huge push by the US to become energy independent. And they're getting very close with their uh, hydrocarbon industry in particular. Um, but we don't have to go that back that far in Asia, for example, to see the extraordinary lengths that Japan and others went to for energy security. What is uh, exceptional with nuclear power is the capacity to buy stockpile uranium in its various forms and be 100% energy secure within your own borders. So uh, one of the calculations that I've seen is Japan's entire uh, nuclear requirements before Fukushima could be stored in a single warehouse, stored, protected, guarded, however you want to look at energy security. It's not about protecting a fleet of coal bearing ships that are coming in for countries that are really concerned about this. And it's not about protecting um, trade access to hydrocarbon producing nations, et cetera, et cetera. So it offers this energy security, but over and above that, uh, it is a large scale industrial complex across many, many different components, across many, many different vendors of equipment. And to be able to spearhead as a sovereign nation an industry that can deliver infrastructure of the scale and complexity and longevity of nuclear power plants. I think if America wants to remain one of the largest uh, economies in the world throughout the 21st century, it absolutely needs to play in this game. And when you start to look at some of the trajectories that I believe nuclear power will experience because of the factors we've talked about, um, to remain outside of an energy source that's likely to comprise 20% of the growth going forward for a large country like America just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Okay. And, and how much role do you think the fact that they've got this huge nuclear fleet as well? I mean, the, that seems a very important thing for them. They've, they've got these floating nuclear reactors all around the world. Is that a larger part of the consideration? Um, well, it is with the current administration. So we've seen a lot of focus on technology and IP from the Trump administration, and there's much of that that's driving, of course, the trade tensions between the US and China right now. But where the next generation of nuclear reactors, the so-called small modular reactors, play an important role is, as with the broader industry, America was streets ahead. They had the first uh, regulated or... Um, approved or authorized uh, SMR reactor and have done almost nothing with it in the last five years. And what we've seen is Japan and, uh, sorry, we've seen Japan, but in particular China and Russia catch up to that technology because China and Russia, they can make available commercial scale pilots for all of these, whether it's floating reactors or other small modular reactors. The Trump administration has realised that they do have time to catch this issue. And so we've seen a lot of spending come in and also a lot of talk just in the last year about expediting 
availability and permitting and approvals so that they can get commercial scale uh, SMR and Gen 4 reactors into action. Now, going back to my point about technology and IP, uh, to be at the forefront of such an important new technology is very attractive to a country like the United States um, for various reasons, but partly and largely because they need to maintain their competitiveness of their manufacturing industry. And technology is the only way they're going to be able to do that in the coming decades compared to a workforce like China. Okay. I. I... I think there's a lot more to be discussed around the US component, but I don't want this to be a US-centric interview. Um, but just to finish off the geopolitics component, obviously China, Russia, Kazakhs, all in, in terms of proximity to where you're based, Africa, um, they all have their, their, their um, foot through the door in a lot of those countries already with other commodities, obviously. Are you seeing or have you been approached by those types of players and uh, with regards to securing um, you know, future production or is that a conversation that has not been had and if it, you know, in fact, is it a conversation that you'd be allowed to have? Well, it's a conversation that I won't have at the moment. Uh, it would be foolish to have those types of conversations as we are only just bottoming out of an eight-year bear market. But to answer your question about are we seeing it, absolutely we're seeing it. Um, if you look at China, for example, we saw uh, CGN acquire extract resources and Kalahari minerals mm -hmm. for 2.4 billion US and then proceed to spend somewhere between 2 and 3 billion building the Husab uranium mine and continue to operate that mine in circumstances where clearly it's uneconomic at the current prices. Um, so the fact that they're prepared to continue pushing with that mine and producing rather than acquiring in the spot market says a lot about their long-term ambitions and their long-term requirements to not only acquire production certainty moving forward but acquire expertise and demonstrate that China is capable of building and running what was one of only two multi-billion dollar resources developments in Africa in the last 10 years. Um, now the same can be said for Russia uh, they acquired during the last boom the Makuju River project in Tanzania for over a billion dollars. Uh, and they have very close relationships with the large-scale production that we see in Kazakhstan. And Uranium One, which is uh, a state-owned entity owned by the Russians, operates more joint ventures in Kazakhstan than any other uh, company other than Kazatomprom, of course. Um, but that extends beyond that. We have India who has finally started to achieve some genuine traction with their nuclear program after several years of false starts. Uh, they have an aggressive program to not only stockpile uranium, but to start securing their own supply certainty. And South Korea has demonstrated in the UAE that they uh, can build on time and efficiently reactors and they must be eyeing a significant export market to complement their other heavy industries such as shipping and so forth. So there are multiple players that have a keen interest in securing large scale certainty of supply. And that's what you have in Africa. The projects are much bigger. They tend to be higher on the cost curve, but they offer a unique form of security of supply because A, large nations have got greater geopolitical influence with African countries. Um, I'm not saying they misuse that influence. In fact, I'm saying quite the contrary. Most African countries benefit enormously from that investment, but they do have the influence 
um, to be able to secure and protect their own investments. But on top of that, the role of interest groups and the role of adversaries in uranium mining and the nuclear sector, it, they simply don't get any real traction whatsoever in Africa because the development agenda is so strong and governments in Africa have been through that, whether it's uranium mining, other mining, all sorts of other activist groups, and they've learned to put the interests of their citizens and their um, prosperity well ahead of whatever television screens might fill up within Europe or the US. Essentially, yeah, no, I, I know Africa quite well, um, and I, I'd agree with what you just said as well. Okay, um, this is a nice segue into let's talk about Bannerman. So, if you don't mind, I'm just going to go through some of the pages from your, um, I think it's November presentation, if we may, and if I can just just kick off with some some questions around the the, the financials. So. Um, Back then, you had 7.7 .7 million bucks in cash. Is that pretty similar now, or we've we burnt through a bit of that? No, very similar. And um, we have a very tight cost control. We did do a little bit of drilling, but that was only under a thousand meters of RC. And the work that we're doing on our project at the moment, that I'm sure we'll talk about, is almost entirely done internally. So our cost controls tight and we've still got the lion's share of $7 million. Right, okay, in interesting. Um, and market cap, 50, 50 million share price, circa five cents. Um, over a billion shares out. That's, that's the standard Australian thing, isn't it? Why, why, why do Australians do that? <laughs> well, it's the, the biggest thing is uh, we don't have a reason here not to do that in the sense that um, if you were to compare the Australian approach with the Canadian approach, mm. both com uh, companies on both exchanges, they operate the same way in that they have a, le a level of success, hopefully, they issue more shares. They need to go to the next level of success with the feasibility studies, et cetera, they issue more shares. That dynamic doesn't uh, differ at all. And in fact, in the last few years, ASX has been far more bountiful for resources, yes. investors and uh, companies than, than other exchanges. The difference is investors in Australia, they really hate consolidations or reverse share splits. Um, they don't like the effect that it has on their sense of value. They don't like the effect that it definitely has on liquidity. And there's too many examples where companies might undertake a consolidation and someone pulls the shares out of the bottom drawer, thinks that they've tripled and in fact the share's still where it is, they just got a, a third as many. Um, so there is no incentive and there's a strong disincentive to consolidate registers. So we just don't do it and it doesn't bother us. However, okay. what I'm learning on Twitter at the moment is it, it does bother North American investors a lot and uh, they seem to think that somehow management must be horrendously negligent to allow a share count of a billion shares. Well, there you, there you go. Like I say, US versus the world again. Now, talk, talk to me about your share register then. You've got, well, about 40% seems to be retail, and then you've got a, a, a couple of big names in there and the, and the usual kind of high net worth, et cetera. The board's sitting on 8%. You were heavily vested. You continue to invest? Uh, myself, no. So I, I acquired a substantial position, at least for my own financial circumstances, when I came in as CEO. Mm -hmm. um, I do have... 50% uh, of my package is paid in equity that is performance weighted and um, it requires performance hurdles to be achieved. Um, but there's just too much going on in the sector for me to be uh, in the market at the moment. 
Um, we do have strong board participation, as you've noticed. Uh, but I think the other thing that is interesting about our register is despite being a micro cap and still being at about that $50 million level, uh, we've got very unusual levels of institutional support. Hmm. Uh, so about 34% institutions, including those big names that you mentioned, and um, a number of specialist uranium funds, which of course makes me very proud, but I think also gives investors a lot of comfort. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and what, so what, what sort of hurt, I mean, given the position of the marketplace and not much is moving, what, what type of performance targets are you talking about? And um, so our employee incentive plan that relates to um, all employees, um, it's 50% judged on KPI performance and 50% judged on total shareholder return. Right. So we take Bannerman against the basket of peers uh, we exclude, obviously, the more beta-related company, so we don't compare ourselves against the share price growth that you would get from a UPC or a Yellowcake or a Kazatomprom or a Cameco or even some of the producers. So we are competing against companies that have got active in, uh, exploration programs and so on in the uranium space. And only if we outperform um, those companies do we um, do we benefit from the EIP. So I guess it's not, not much happening at the moment because no one's doing anything really at the moment? Oh, um, compared to what it'll be like in a couple of years, I'll certainly agree with that. There you go. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Um, we'll, get in, we'll get into the, the um, board uh, in, in a second. So why don't you, um, well, I think you, you spent a bit of time sort of describing the market in the presentation. I think we've had a lot of um, interviews um, about that recently, plus you've been quite good at describing that. The one page I did quite like was, and I think you just alluded to it, was the financial players in the space. You know, you've got Tribeca on board. Um, in the UK, it's got Yellow Cake. But there seems to be a few more of these types of funds starting up. Um, is, that's, I guess, in, indicates that people's um, perception of where this market's going to go. Is, would you agree? Absolutely. Um, so it's both being created by sentiment and reinforcing positive sentiment. Um, it, as I think my deck sets out. If you go back only 12 months, there were only two players in the space, and that was UPC, who've been around since uh, the early stages of the last boom. And mm. um, they've done 11 raisings in their life and raised something like 645 million Canadian dollars. Mm. And uh, Geiger Counter Fund based and listed in London, um, who invest in equities, including Bannerman. So just in the last 12 months, the increasing sentiment behind the bottoming of the uranium sector and the expectation of a bull market has driven demand from contrarian and really uh, early adopting smart money to fund these different groups. And you, you mentioned Mike Alkin, who is an extraordinarily intelligent voice in, in this whole sector. Uh, so he runs a Sachem Cove Partners Fund, um, which are disclosed as an investor in Bannerman, I'm proud to say, L2 Capital out of Brazil tapping uh, family office money in Brazil with Marcelo Lopez. I'm proud to say he's disclosed that he's a Bannerman shareholder. Um, I mentioned the Geiger Counter Fund, Ocliner Asset Management out of Singapore. They're Bannerman shareholders They're in their specialist uranium fund. Uh, you've talked about Trebeca as well. And there are others who uh, haven't voluntarily disclosed. And so I'm not, it's, I'm not privy to, to disclose that on their behalf. Um, but I think the big news as well is that we've just seen overnight the first ETF that's been uh, formed to track the new Celastic 
pure play uranium fund index. And I'm also very proud to say that Bannerman has made the cut for that. And we're one of only seven Australian listed companies, including some of the big ones like ERA, uh, that are included in that uh, index and therefore will be included in the ETF. So what all of these do is they create new opportunities for capital to enter the market that otherwise would either find the sector too small. So that entire selectic uh, index is only about $15 billion, which includes Cameco, Kazatomprom, UPC and Yellowcake. Uh, but it also provides other risk tolerant investors uh, with the avenue to invest in the broader uranium thematic, which is very important. So as I say, it was started by a positive turn in sentiment, but very much uh, exacerbating the increased sentiment through the capacity to draw in new funds from unusual corners of the investment community and start deploying that directly into both physical commodity and also equities. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I did I did catch that earlier this week. So you, I think that is interesting because, in fact, here's one for you. you, so you we're talking about investment into, into companies such as yourself. Okay, um, this shows for retail investors, high net worth family offices who perhaps not quite sophisticated as the institutional versus primarily because they can't get access to the information. So if you were one of those guys, I mean, what type of exposure would you have to uranium? You've got obviously equities, you've got physical, you've got ETFs, I think, getting a slightly better rep, hopefully. Um, I mean, how, what would your not advice, but what, what, what would you do? Okay, so so if I was running a family office. There you go. Better call, uh, well done. <laughs> and, I didn't, and I didn't have you or me to make uranium picks. <laughs> what I would probably do is heavily weight something like an ETF and then have a couple of serious alpha picks outside of that. Um, and whether it's an ETF or whether I'm putting my money with someone like Mark Alkin would really just come down to very finely balanced uh, risk tolerance decisions. Yeah. Um, someone like Mike Alkin with his extraordinary sector knowledge and amazing due diligence uh, and ability to think in detail about a helicopter view, uh, I think that that offers in fact superior risk management to just taking an ETF which needs to invest via a robot. Um, however, uh, you're never going to be criticised for buying ETF, uh, buying IBM in the form of investing in an ETF. You just need to pick the macro and then um, whatever happens in the ETF is what happens. So I think there's a role for all of those. Uh, but the, the point that I'd make, though, is the moment you're at any scale as a hedge fund or a family office or in high net worth, uh, it becomes difficult to play in the alpha space because there just isn't much... Uh, value out there at the moment with uh, the uranium sector being on its knees. So, so by alpha, you were talking about the, the, the large producing um, companies, equities? Well, I, I guess that probably depends on your definition of alpha. I'm talking multiple returns, um, the sort of returns that made some investors quite famous during the last boom. Would you agree that the 232 announcement has kind of frozen the contract market because utilities are trying to work out what what side that's going to fall on is that a no question. no question for 18 months it's done that because we saw the petition issued in january last year 
um, a long period of uncertainty before a decision was made to take up the investigation by the Department of Commerce. And what we've seen now is because the decision is just around the corner, uh, potentially as little as uh, days away, but more likely several weeks away, it's frozen all sorts of activity. The traders, they don't have any balance dates coming up. They need to be careful of a closing position. So they're under no requirements to buy. Um, the producers, they've got the inventory cover to hold over this period. So they don't need to buy to, um, to cover lost production. The utilities certainly don't need to buy in the next few weeks. So we've really come to the sharp end of this uncertainty because the decision will be made and it will become public within the time frame of almost every conceivable procurement decision in this market. And I think that's why we're seeing a drifting spot price because despite that uh, overhang paralyzing the buying, there are still small pockets of owners of U308 that do for whatever reason need to sell. And when they're selling into an illiquid buying market, that will of course put pressure on the price to where we see today. Right, okay. So. So a few things there, and again, I kind of want to get into talking about Bannerman here. So um, I guess at the moment the price is is binary. It's either going to be economic or it's not. So it doesn't matter whether it's at eighteen twenty-five or well, maybe maybe thirty. Some people might be able to make it work. It, it doesn't matter until the price moves, and the price isn't going to move until the utilities get certainty, and that's around two three two. And to them, it doesn't matter which way it falls. They just need certainty. They just need to know <clears throat> what the moving parts are to be able to make decisions about go-forward contracts. Is that I, I certainly agree with that. And it's an interesting point because there is some perception amongst investors that it's about picking winners and losers ahead of Section 232 result. I don't buy that. Yes, different results will potentially benefit some companies over others. And there are some scenarios which will um, actually be detrimental to certain companies. But for a company like Bannerman and most companies out there, the result cannot be negative because there's been 18 months of uncertainty that's hung over the sector like a wet blanket that has stopped all sorts of procurement decisions and all sorts of trading liquidity. And as a result of that, just the sheer action of that uncertainty dissipating will produce market activity for certainly everyone's benefit on the uranium side of the equation. Yeah, I, 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 I'd agree with that. Um, and so talking of which, um, I want to, um, I'm looking at your page 12 on your presentation and everyone can um, get that from your website. Um, the questions I want you to answer will allow me to work out, you know, are you one of the companies that's going to survive? So I think I agree with you. Um, there will be lots of winners. But depending on how long the price takes to ramp up, there may be a few people who fall by the wayside because they may not be able to raise money cheaply or efficiently. And that, you know, that's, that's something that um, I guess there's lots of conversations going on and they don't have the cash flow to survive you know, another six months, let alone 12, 18 months. So in here at some point, I'd like your view on what, where you think the spot price is going to go and over what timeline because i think very few people can tell me that and i just wondered if you had an opinion well i can't tell you that but i do have an opinion great <laughs> I, let's let's have that we won't hold each other and, and i'm i'm one of those uh, potentially foolish 
uh, commentators out there who's prepared to proffer an opinion. Okay. Um, and I've done that, you might know, uh, quite consistently over the last couple of years. And I think my foolishness is encouraged by the fact that I've got it right more than I've got it wrong. So what I foresee in terms of a spot price is closing the year between 35 and $40. Um, that is enough growth from where we are today below $25 to get the attention of the more important sectors of the market that are going to drive it in the following year in 2020. Um, it will shake away some of the perception that exists amongst utilities that we have another three, four years of flatlining prices. And it's that perception that has led to them relying on um, their dwindling inventory cover and also the um, ability to secure contracts in the future at what they presume would be similar pricing to today. Um, but it's probably a bit south of where many of the uranium bulls are hoping to get to in that time frame. And what I would say to support that prediction is that uh, we do have a situation where Cameco has almost entirely been out of the market this calendar year. Um, they still have a need of between 10 and 12 million pounds that they need to secure by the end of the year. I think if they saw the right circumstances, they'd be happy to secure forward some of their 2020 production. And it just made, for various reasons, it makes absolutely no sense for them to sit there as a buyer of last resort in the high 20s. However, if they have the opportunity to be buying at the sort of prices we're seeing now, they can make a good financial return when you compare that to what they'd be then selling that into their contract portfolio for. And equally, uh, as we start to see an increasing momentum in the uranium price, um, Cameco aren't going to be averse to uh, supporting that momentum because of what it means for the medium term growth of the value that they achieve from their contract portfolio. But Cameco aren't going to do that into a dead market. That just would be uh, naive. So we have Section 232 resolved. It'll take a little bit of time for people to understand what that really means. By September, we have the World Nuclear Association Annual Symposium, and that's very unique because you have a whole wide-ranging number of people from all these little different niches of the industry who don't normally talk to each other and certainly don't understand each other's part of the business, getting together and finding out what the hell's going on. So that's important both from a uranium point of view and having a wide discussion around what the resolution of Section 232 actually means. But also, when you pull all of the little bits of news and all the snippets of developments from around the world together, it paints, as I said at the beginning, a very, very positive picture of the immediate growth prospects for nuclear. But many people in the industry, they're so hard at it doing whatever they do on a day-to-day -day basis. It takes something like World Nuclear Association Symposium for that to be surmised and presented to them before they realise, wow, it's back to the good days. That's so the combination of those factors in September, I think, will start to produce the environment that we need for confidence to come back initially into the spot market. Once we start seeing that momentum, uh, I think it's reasonable to expect Cameco and, and other producers to get behind that. And if we see the $30 psychological barrier breached um, earlier in the year than later, then I certainly see that momentum continuing through $35. And um, if we see that psychological barrier breached before the WNA symposium, then I think we're looking at the top, the upper end of the range that I've just articulated. That, thanks for that.
Uh, that's um, either very brave or very foolish. I'm not quite sure yet. We'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> ask me on one January. Exactly. And I'll you. Exactly. Um, but that's kind of interesting what you said about the, you know, the, the, the the symposium because you know if I listen to some of the narratives in the marketplace, you know people are talking about collusion is a terrible word to use at the moment, but uh, there's there's there people talking about you know price control, price fixers, price makers. Uh, people with alternative uh, business models to the rest of the market. But you were talking about a kind of collective uh, set of discussions and decision-making, which will, once there's some agreement as to the, the way forward, certainly after 232, um, the price will very quickly uptick to you know, 35, 40 bucks by the end of the year. Yeah, and I would describe it more as a collective consciousness. Mm. It's yeah, a collective acceptance about where the nuclear industry is going in both the short and medium term, mm. and therefore what that means for both buying decisions in the uranium and nuclear fuel cycle, but also producing decisions. Um, I've heard some of the commentary around uh, manipulation or influence and so on. And you know what, Matt? Uh, Matt I just don't buy that. Um, I've seen, I've been in the room with Cameco, right to their most senior leadership, the same with Kazadam Prom. I spent a lot of time with those guys. They are exceptionally careful and respectful of antitrust guidelines and all of the negative implications that could come with that. So I think it's a simplistic view to say that there's someone trying to be a puppet master here and, and that in some way they either have an agenda to suppress prices or to support prices. The reality is Cameco needs to buy the stuff. It's in their interest to buy the price up because their contract portfolio is floating and 60% exposed to an increased spot price. And that's all you need to know about it. Yeah. So no collusion. Very Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Um, let's, let's talk about um, this page 12 of yours. You talk about track record in the sector. So let's get into that. I want to understand what you mean leverage to price we talk about the strategic appeal of Bannerman. Um, obviously, we can all see that you, this is a, an advanced asset. You're, you know, D DFS, you've got a pilot plant. Um, and then some phrases which I, I went on to say, low non-financial no, non risk, et cetera. So let's start with track record. Talk to me about the team. This has been going since 2006. So you know, what have you been doing? What have you achieved? You know, what have you learned? So since 2006, we've taken the Tango project through um, initial ascertainment of resources, uh, through scoping study, PFS, DFS, optimised DFS, and a pilot plant. Um, you've seen in that deck the heat leach demonstration plant. That's enabled us to test at a scale the heat leach process. We're always very confident about metallurgy, but that's not the same thing as financiers and others in the market having that level of confidence. And until you've tested it at that sort of scale, uh, it's hard to win people over. And the reason why it's hard is we achieved 93% recovery in only 22 days, which is absolutely extraordinary. And along, Very good. Yeah. Along with some of the horror stories that you see in copper and other, other minerals out there. So we needed that scale to demonstrate our confidence with that sort of uh, results. Um, now, what I would say is throughout this process, the company has been run by people, in particular my predecessor, Len Jabba, who were determined 
to build and operate the project. These are people who saw themselves standing on the edge of the mine and being accountable to the board for meeting targets. And without putting too fine a point on it, that isn't done throughout the industry, whether it's uranium or other commodities. It means that the work has been done meticulously, it's been done very thoroughly, and it's been done honestly as well. Okay, so but the team today, what's their experience? You know, I mean, you took, you, 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 you've replaced Len and, you know, so what's the current team look like? Are you guys capable of finishing this, this project? Uh, well, certainly not capable of finishing it on our own. You know, it's a big project and we'll need a lot of people to come in. But, that's, but is, that, is that money or is that people? Sorry. Uh, well, it's certainly both. Okay. Um, you know, to develop a big project like this, we'll, we'll need to be hiring extensively and, uh, and hiring all sorts of expertise. But if you look at the governance, which I think is the most important thing, um, ranging from our chairman, Ronnie Beaver, who used to run Rothschild in the Asia Pacific region, um, Mike Leach, who's, our, who's a non-executive director on the ASX, but also chairman in country. He was the MD of Rossing uh, for many years, and he was a CFO of Rossing for 15 years before that. So it, it, obviously extensive operating experience, but also extensive experience within the nuclear sector with uh, marketing the product relationship with utilities. Uh, he's been the Chamber of Mines president. He's been the president of the Namibian Uranium Association, et cetera, et cetera. So very deep country and nuclear experience residing there. Clive Jones, who was one of the founders of the company, he is a geologist uh, who's been involved in a number of ASX listed companies. And Ian Burville is an engineer who has quite a deep processing uh, skill suite and uh, he adds enormous value as well uh, in terms of my experience i'm a little bit unconventional you could say i first of all studied quantitative economics at university and somehow found a more interesting path through law and worked as an m a lawyer for a number of years including during the last uranium boom which was a lot of fun and uh, from there i've been an executive in the resources sector predominantly a bit of infrastructure for about the last 10 years and i lived in namibia for five or six years i'm still heavily involved in the chamber of mines and the namibian uranium association so i've got uh, credible i would say country experience and relationships and also what i do these days is spend a bit of time involved with the world nuclear association and i'm currently on the co-chair of their demand subgroup, which is the working group that determines all of the demand projections for nuclear fuel from here out to 2040, which will be published in the nuclear fuel report in September ahead of the symposium. Very good, very good. Um, can, I, can I just ask you, because um, not a lot of people spend time on the, you know, the asset or some of the other asset risks, like just jurisdictional risk around licenses, permits, etc. I mean, I know Namibia through other commodities, but you know, give us your view, or at least you know, tell, tell the viewers and listeners from your view, doing business in Namibia, what's that like? What are the problems you've incurred? Because you're 13 years into this thing, or the company's 13 years into this thing. Um, what are the problems along the way, and you know, how have you resolved those? Mm -hmm. So I first moved to Namibia in 2009. And as I say, lived there for a number of years, and then I've been closely involved through Bannerman for the last three, four years after moving back to Australia. And Namibia is a fantastic operating environment across a number of different dimensions. 
Uh, just in terms of being there and getting around and getting people to work there and move there and visit there and so on, uh, Africa is often regarded as Africa for beginners. Uh, Namibia is regarded as Africa for beginners by the guidebooks. It's a very easy place to live, to visit. Uh, between Johannesburg and Vintook, there's six flights a day, a couple of flights a day to Wallfish Bay, which is where our project is. Um, you can drive around the country very easily. It's safe, secure. I never even had a car broken into when I lived there. So many, many things like that that just make your existence in Namibia very simple. Oh, mm. And I shouldn't uh, forget to mention that they've got very good and reasonable access to South African whites. Um, there's a few of my old buddies who would really criticise. Sold. Okay, this. I'm a buyer. Good. Okay, a vintage lager. What more can you ask for? There you go. All the um, good stuff. Um, but tell me, let's get into the mines. Uh, the Ministry for Mines. Um, you know, tell me, how do you engage with them? You know, what? How do they help you? How do they hinder you? Oh, well, these are people that I've known for a long time. Um, the Minister of Mines and Energy, who is relatively new, uh, he knows other people in our company and board members extremely well over a long period of time. Uh, he was the Director of um, Planning in Namibia, which is a um, very complex and sophisticated position that means he needs to have a holistic view of the entire sector. So very, very intelligent person, very eloquent and very supportive. Um, within the actual bureaucratic and technocratic aspects of the Ministry of Mines, uh, you can't be a big fish in a small pond like Bannerman and Atango are without having everyone's attention and support. Um, so we were granted a mineral deposit retention licence, um, which is the ideal form of tenure for waiting patiently uh, when there's a downturn. Um, that was a strong form of support from the government. Um, we just had our EPL, there's an adjoining exclusive prospecting license that uh, has just been renewed within the minimum time frame involved. We've got all of our environmental permits supported by the Ministry of Mines and Energy, but issued by the Ministry of Environment and Tourism. Um, so, and, and I've got to say, we've earned that as well. We've earned it through being transparent, through being uh, honest with government, uh, through forming partnerships and also through really investing heavily in community programs and making ourselves an invited guest that people want to stay rather than that person who forces themselves in the door and, and sort of hangs around until you start talking dinner. Okay, so it's, it's been plain sailing the whole time? Yeah. Great, okay. Um, can we get on to uh, price and leverage and what you mean by that? Because you use some phrases in here which I, I just need to understand. So you're, you're doing on page uh, 18, you're doing the EV to resource reserve um, valuation i think that's fairly industry standard but you know we i've got to talk about grades and margins here so africa namibia specifically what are the grades like in relation to the athabasca australia kazakhstan and you know how does that affect your numbers you're the economist <laughs> so thank you um they're polar opposites to athabasca um so Namibia is able to reliably operate uranium mines at amongst the lowest grades in the world. And there's a couple of aspects to that. The first one is where well, you've got to ask yourself why the country's been able to do that for more than 40 years. And it's because the other associated costs are very low. Um, but also the mineralogy and the consistency and the sheer volume and scale of these projects is very, very large. So they have the benefit of economies of scale. 
And it's very difficult to compare with Kazakhstan and other ISR projects because still uh, it's the um, it's the hydromineralogy that's the most important thing for ISR deposits. Grade comes a long second to permeability and consistency when it comes to an ISR project. So it's a little bit like apples and oranges okay. um, to compare. The um, so the other thing that I'd say about operating in Africa with a low grade deposit is unlike copper or gold, for example, uh, you do start to have diminishing returns with grade in the uranium space. And that's because of the complexity that comes through the radionuclide side of things and the radioactivity and the various right. steps and safeties that take associated with that. So when you've got an open pit, large scale, lowish grade mine, um, you have to be absolutely responsible about it, but you don't have the cost imposts associated with dealing with the radioactivity that you do in say a high grade underground mine in the Athabasca Basin. And that's why uh, MacArthur River and Cigar Lake, I think they've still got the highest value per ton of any commodity for any industrial mine in the entire world. And yet they still just sit there at the top of the um, first quartile in our industry. Right, okay. Okay, I mean, I, I guess it's a much more technical answer than perhaps someone as limited as me would be capable of understanding. But I, you know, at some point, maybe if we catch up next time, we can get into into that. And I think if we look at page 33 on your presentation, you actually do a peer analysis for us. And, you know, because for me, it's about, you know, if I'm going to invest in uranium, I'm a believer in the uranium story, you know, who do I invest into? Who's most likely to be able to deliver profitability? It's a, it's a pure numbers game for me. But it's always interesting to understand technically how the company, what the company has to overcome and is its ability to be able to deliver against that. Perhaps we can touch upon that on page 33 um, in, in a second, um, certainly in relation to the peer analysis. But let, let's just, you know, go through the presentation. You talk about strategic appeals. So Tango is the largest unaligned uranium project with a feasibility study. So by unaligned, I mean, I see no one's forward bought any of your assets. They don't own any equity. You are independent to some degree, obviously shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, why do you make that analysis? Why is that sort of interesting? I, I think it's very interesting because what we do know really about any sector, but particularly uranium, mm. is what follows the early stages of a recovery from bear to bull market is consolidation. Mm. And consolidation is particularly acute in the uranium sector because of the security of supply dynamic and all of the imperatives that follow that. So if we look at the last uranium boom, what we saw was all of the usual factors of commodity consolidation. We saw um, the majors trying to look bigger than each other. We saw the mids trying to become majors. We saw uh, companies with single or multiple commodity exposures looking to diversify into other exposures. But what you also have on top of that in uranium is you have the role of the sovereigns. Uh, predominantly sovereign countries wanting to secure their own energy needs, mm. but also uh, sovereign supported integrated nuclear power producers or vendors looking to secure the fuel going right. forward right and that's where the non-aligned factor becomes so important because if you want to try and look forward and 
estimate who's going to be attractive when the consolidation range starts. In other yeah. words, who has that strategic appeal that will obtain a premium over the boats that are lifted by a common rising tide. That becomes extremely important, as does the scale of production, as does the long life nature of the asset, as does its position in Namibia. So that's why I say that we've got exceptionally powerful strategic appeal uh, with both the Tango and Bannerman. And you're, or you don't have any consideration as to whether you're selling to US, Russian, China, or other interests. This, is, this would just be a transaction which is about the economics. Well, we're in a position to look pretty much to anyone in the world, uh, or rather, I'd put it that anyone in the world can look at us. And that's the unique appeal that we've got being in Namibia. And um, if you were to, let's take China, because they've clearly got the most voracious appetite for uranium and uranium projects going forward. Um, China's going to have a hard time investing in Australia because of the Foreign Investment Review Board. They're going to have a very hard time controlling anything in Canada because Ottawa doesn't allow majority control by foreign companies in their uranium sector. Um, I think it's pretty clear that they'd find it hard in the US at the moment with all of the geopolitical and um, nationalistic fervor that we've got going on there. You then look at Niger. Well, Niger is so tightly protected and controlled by the French that it would require a bilateral agreement with uh, Paris to start stepping on those toes at any sort of scale. And then you run out of countries that have got any sort of uh, relevance to the uranium sector, given that uh, Kazatomprom necessarily by law controls all of the uranium deposits in Kazakhstan. And the same can be said for India and the same can be said for Russia and South Korea and UAE. Uh, they can all come to Namibia. We have Russian companies in Namibia. We have Indian companies in Namibia. Uh, clearly, we have Chinese companies in Namibia as well with uh, Husab and then Rossing, mm. their investment in Telanga Heinrich. Um, so it is unusual. It is unique. And it's both the asset is attractive to those groups and their balance sheets but also the jurisdiction is really an open door uh, that doesn't exist in many other parts of the world. That's interesting. So, you know, the next, the next bit of your presentation talks about it's an advanced asset. And if people go to page 26 of your presentation, get it from your website, you, there's a nice chart there which says you're, you're up there. You're as far as you, you, you can go with this project without actually getting into production. And so what's next? Let's say the market comes back online. Let's say the, pr the price gets to... 60 bucks or whatever it gets whatever it gets to that's economic for you to kind of move forward with this project is it focused on your one asset one country non-diversified risk approach or do you have to go out there and speak to or go and discover more or do you go to an orano and say hey you've got some assets why don't we um why don't we jv or could we buy one of those off of you i mean what's the future look like assuming all things are great in the spot market and contract market? Well, the future for a Tango, because it's so advanced, large and technically simple, would be to move forward as quickly as possible once we have the price signal that we require. Sure. And the next steps on a Tango, we've been undertaking a DFS update for some time. Um, we're making time our friend there. The more time we've got before that price signal, the more work we can do and the better return on investment we can get for our internal resources that are being deployed there. 
But equally, it doesn't make sense to draw that process to a conclusion, go out to fresh procurement and produce a new DFS number until we're ready to finance. Number one, it could go stale if things take a little bit longer, but number two, you get much better prices and uh, offers out of vendors if they know you're just around the corner and they're, they're in the running. Yeah, I, so, I, so that, I, mean, I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to, trying to weigh up is um, I'm assuming the price comes back. I'm assuming you're able to raise finance at a, a rate which you're, you're happy with or both sides are happy with. You're going to move into production and you can either eyes down, focus on your one asset or now might be the time to start having conversations about future acquisitions given where some companies are at, where how you view certain assets and your experience in Africa. Is that any part of your thinking at the moment or do you want to just get, the, get, get step one done first? So I don't think, Matt, that they're mutually exclusive. Um, I think uh, from where we're at at the moment, we don't have any investment decisions to make to continue a tango going forward. All of the work's being done. As I said, there's a little bit of work to be done wrapping up a DFS update, but that's something to be done for hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions in a couple of months mm. work. Uh, and then it's into financing. So that could be done either in conjunction with, or it could be interrupted by uh, some sort of a consolidation activity. And what I think, and I'm speaking really on behalf of the industry as a whole, rather than Bannerman's board specifically here, but I think the uranium sector needs consolidation. There are too many single asset companies who are promising the world to utilities and the utilities are not miners. They're not mining investors. They don't have the sophistication to really see through all of these promises and rank and decide and evaluate who's a real producer, who's got a real asset and who doesn't. So one of the problems that we face as an industry is they think there's a world of supply of uranium coming down the uh, funnel at them. And people like you and me and those involved in the sector know that that just ain't the case. And consolidation is one of the things that will help to sort that problem out and help to create a more realistic picture of what supply is actually available. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, you know, because if you look at the way the market has performed in terms in the past, when, when the prices are high, you get lots and lots of uranium companies. When it's low, they everyone sort of falls by the wayside and you're left with you. But you're saying with the 50 or so companies, I'm talking producers down to explorers at various stages, you think, you think there's still room for consolidation in there? Most definitely, most definitely there Excellent. is. Okay. And it's healthier for the nuclear industry as well. I, 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 because yeah. I'd agree. producing a pipeline of assets that can serve it over the next 50, 60, 70 years, rather than um, skyrocketing prices, bringing on another glut of production, and then here we go again. I, I, I would agree, I would agree. So let me t tell me what you mean by, I'm t looking at page 28, You've got, you have, Bannerman has low technical risk. I mean, you've got low technical risk because uranium is low technical risk, or are you saying that you specifically have low technical risk? Uh, very much us specifically. So um, we touched on grade before. So uh, we do operate with relatively low grade and that affects our economics. I would argue that it shouldn't affect an investment decision. Your investment decision should be based on economics, potential returns, and therefore risk. Grade is just one of many factors that comes into that economic decision in our DFS numbers. So the low technical risk, it resides in several things. Um, and I would define is what are the risks 
that this project is unable to produce uranium in the quantities it claims when that uranium is required. So if we run through the list, first of all, the ore body is incredibly consistent and simple. I'd call it boring. Uh, the mineralogy is almost entirely consistent throughout the entire deposit. Um, we get about 96% of the uranium from the one single mineral. Um, the volumes are vast. Some of our intersections are continuous over more than 280 metres, for example. Um, because of that, the strip ratio is low. It outcrops and the, both the strip ratio and the internal dilution is very low. We can control that even further through radiometric sorting on the trucks. Um, but the, the more important things, uh, the metallurgy is very simple. We will adopt a heat leaching process. And as I mentioned, we've tested that extensively with our demonstration plant with very, very good recoveries. Okay. Can, can I ask then, so you, you mentioned something earlier. You said that you're probably higher up the cost curve than, 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 than some. So how does this low technical risk, ease of operation, bulk tonnage operation, marry up with that high, in a higher cost? Is it just because of the grade? Correct. Okay. Yeah. The grade is pulling our cost up and everything else is keeping it at a level that's reasonable and with and at a level that keeps the economics robust. You're still going to so you're still going to make money, and because you've got volume of of um, ore, uh, you're still going to make money. But it's going to be. I mean, looking at your projected IRR, it's about around fifteen percent at the moment. I'm sure you'll optimize that at some point further down the line, which you know puts you at the you know let's say low low end compared to some of the peers that you you know put yourself up against. But you do have a heck of a lot more resource than most. Well, we do. It is a very big project. Uh, and so that gives us what I would say is more related to strategic appeal, um, both to sovereigns, but also to utilities, um, both in the way that the asset would hold itself in a consolidated group. And one of the things that's most important for uranium mine is mine life. Yeah. Um, both from your customer's point of view, but when you think about how much investment of various types of resources is required to get a uranium company and a uranium project going with environmental approvals, social approvals, all of the infrastructure required to export class seven ships, et cetera, et cetera. You don't wanna be doing that for only 10 years. You need to get a return on that distributed resources uh, output over a long period of time. And we have that. There's plenty of material under the pit that's not included in the resource. It just doesn't make sense to drill that deep at the moment. Can I ask, what, what with regards to your DFS, what price is the uranium in at? I can't see it, or it probably is in your presentation. I just can't see it. But... So initially, for the first five years, we would produce at a cash cost of $33, um, which increases after five years. Uh, but the overall break even is $52 after paying off CapEx and so on. Okay. Um, so we need to see a recovery in the sector uh, before we would even contemplate financing this project. Okay, un understood. So I guess the, 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 the two variables which you can't quite control are grade, but you've got a sort of sense through your drilling of what it, what it currently is, but you it, it may improve, it may go down, but um, you, you can't control that and you can't control price. What you, what you do seem to have a lot of is, is ore and you know, large reserve. Um, 
and you're ready ready to go. So, so does that help me understand when what you use a phrase here? It's called you've got substantial value backing, and by that you just mean do you mean data? Yeah, data that's come at a cost of three hundred and sixty thousand meters of drilling, for example. Um, whether you look at it from what's been spent, we've spent about eighty million dollars on the project versus a Australian dollars versus a market cap of fifty. Um, we've extracted very good data for that. We've got a lot of resources. We've got a lot of reserves. Uh, so I would term, talk in terms of those factors gives you good confidence as to what's represented by that 50 million market cap as we stand today. Right. Okay. And, and so, and given that we, we mentioned earlier, I mean, the pr price, the, the price is important. It's important for everyone. But you know, if the price comes back to where people want it to get to, everyone's making money. It's just a question of how much. Um, you told me you needed to get to about 52 bucks. Uh, to be, you know, for your all-in cost, um, you think it's going to get 35, 40 by the end of this year. Um, so when do you, again, <laughs> asking you to put a put a, a pin in, in in the map for me? When do you think it's going to get to that point where Bannerman can start thinking about either raising the capital or getting into production? So that'll very much depend on the trajectory of long-term contracting. What we would need to see is the established lower cost producers, most notably Cameco and Kazatomprom, um, exhaust their contracting inventory, which means that the utilities would need to then start outbidding each other for what is a fairly small amount of remaining current production and start bidding into new production. Uh, now, that's not going to happen in six months. It probably won't happen in 12 months. It could happen after that if we see the type of trajectory that's the more optimistic view on that. Um, if it takes longer, then it, it'll be driven by both that dynamic with existing consumers of uranium, but also through stockpiling ahead of nuclear build programs that we're seeing just around the corner in China and elsewhere. Okay, that, that's interesting. Now, given that timing that you've outlined, you've got a very good share register. You've got some big names in there. Um, what's your burn rate at the moment? I mean, how long can seven million bucks get you through to before you need to go back to your shareholders and say, hey, we just need a bit more. You can sort of see where this is going um, and be able to raise some more capital. Well, that's a good point. Thank you. We're burning about half a million a quarter, okay. which includes a reasonable amount of spend on the asset itself, like last quarter included drilling and DFS update work. We still have potential to reduce that, and we could, but we're at that fine line between maintaining enough corporate infrastructure to be nimble and responsive and able to react to changes in the market and um, going down a path where you'd lose all of that in favor of greater cash longevity. So we've still got at least a couple of years of runway that we can extend if we saw a market behave in a way that's different to what we expect. Okay, that, that's fantastic. Um, I think that has been a wonderful session, Brandon. I can't, I can't thank you enough. Um, and some great thoughts in there. Great thoughts in there. Um, well, look, I, I guess let's stay in touch and uh, sort of see um, you know, how you get on. Uh, may even see you at the symposium. Never know. Right. Grab a beer or a wine. Um, and uh, perhaps maybe talk to you again in the next few months. Yeah, terrific. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you very much for watching our video. 
We do aim to keep you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.